Welcome to the No Referees Podcast, where we have unpenalized conversations with sports personalities on industry news, their grind, the game, and much more. Please check us out on our social media pages at No Referees Podcast for up-to-date info on the show. Now, let's get into it. What's up, what's up, what's up? Welcome back to No Referees. We have a very, very special guest today. One of my good, good friends from 92.9 ESPN Radio in Memphis, Tennessee, Mr. L. Jason Smith. What up, brother? What's going on, brother? It's good to hear your voice, man. Good to hear you, too. Man, what's the L stand for in L. Jason Smith? Leroy or something like that? What's the L stand for? Is this really how we're going to start this off tonight, man? Is this really what we're going to do? I I, I need to take it off so people like you don't ask that question. (laughs) I've been knowing you for... Umpteen years, and I've always wanted to ask, what does the L stand for? So I just want to know. I'm curious. It's uh, it actually stands for less, man. Look, my dad's name is Leslie, and I didn't go by it ever. It's because of fools like you. We would be in class <laughs> when I was in the fourth and fifth grade. We'd be in class, and uh, you know, when that teacher calls out your name that first day because she doesn't know you, they'd be, you'd say present or whatever. They'd be like Leslie, like that's supposed to be a girl, and literally those uh. Those elementary school whippings I used to take for my first name, man, made me say that, uh, you know, y'all are going to start calling me by my middle name. So literally in school, <laughs> fifth, sixth grade year, I'm going to my teacher first day of class and saying, listen, don't call that first name on that roll. You call my name is Jason, please, ma'am. And uh, yeah, man, that was the deal. So it's Leslie Jason Smith. man. I'm actually a uh, named after my dad. Uh, we just don't have the same middle name. He's Leslie Smith, but he's Leslie Eugene. I'm Leslie Jason. I prefer to go by uh, Jason on my whole life. My grandmama used to call me King Jason, so we kind of just did that, man, and uh, and I stuck with it after those beatings in elementary school, brother. So speaking of your, your dad, Mr. Les Smith, you know, he was one very famous uh, reporter in the city of Memphis. So did you get your start in journalism because of you being around your father? I think so, uh, E. I try to do what a lot of, a, a lot of uh, kids coming out of high school do and, and do what your your parents tell you, and that my mom had told me, well, go major in business in, uh, in college because that's where you're going to make the money. And so I you know, took those classes, started out majoring in business, and didn't like them. Uh, my dad had, uh, had always been a sportscaster as I was growing up. Uh, back then, he wasn't in news. Uh, back when I was growing up as a high school kid, as a junior high kid, he was in sports. And uh, yeah, I'd always you know, seen that, and I always thought, man, you know, if I can't play him, which I couldn't, you know, I, I barely made the JV team in the 10th grade, that the best thing to do would be to to be around him, to talk about him, be a sportscaster like him. And so, uh, but it was never writing. Writing was never going to be what I was going to do. It was always going to be, hey, if I'm going to follow in his footsteps, I'll be a sportscaster. So once I did, uh, you know, kind of go down that, that business trail in college, figure out that's not what I wanted to do. Sure, maybe there was money there, but no passion. You know, that's a whole other conversation about following, you know, kind of your passion rather than where you think the money is. You know, found journalism. Uh, started working for the school newspaper over at the University of Memphis, long story short. Took a class, a media writing class, from a, a guy named Jerome Wright, who at the time was serving as an adjunct professor at the University of Memphis. His full-time gig was as an, uh, an editor down at the Commercial Appeal. And he taught this media writing class to both folks that planned to major in print or that were majoring in print and editorial, and then folks who were, who were still majoring in journalism but had the the television side as their as their sort of uh, strength and major, and so at that point, so so he, right. my point is he taught both in the same class, the same media writing class, because it's all the basics, the who, what, when, where, why of a story. Anyway, long story short, back then, two thousand, well, about ninety nine, it actually was 
you know, newspapers were still robust. You, you could still get a job at a newspaper coming out of, out of college. And so his point was, look, instead of the little one to two minute time blocks that you have to tell a story on television news, with newspapers, you've got a little bit more room and you can dive a little bit deeper. At least that was his pitch. What, some 15, 16, and uh, now we're talking you know, 20 years ago. So I bought it. I liked writing. Uh, found that I had a passion for it, even though I didn't think I did back in high school. Worked at that school newspaper, like I said. Eventually uh, graduated from the U of M in 2002. Uh, get a job at the Commercial Appeal in 2003. And I'm off and writing after, uh, you know, a, a eight-year, really shorter than that, but a- after the layoff in college, after an eight-year college career, uh, I finally have a career in 2003 as a writer down at the Commercial Appeal. Dad inspired me. Didn't initially go there, but uh, kind of found my way back Kind of just that, like like many of us do, sort of in those college years, you're trying to find, you know, what your passion is, what you like to do, as opposed to uh, to what you've been told to do, and you kind of find yourself. And uh, for me, that was uh, that was it. Those were kind of the starting steps there toward writing. Yeah, I was kind of a, kind of similar. My father uh, wanted me to major in computer science mm-hmm. back in the day, right around the Y two K thing, and um, you know, I kind of was undecided on what I wanted to do as well. And so I went, did the same thing, went to community college and because of my dad, you know, he really wanted me to try it. I tried it. I just, I didn't think I could sit just behind a yeah. computer. Yeah. It was just kind of boring to me. So I found out about exercise science and uh, health and human performance. And at that time, there wasn't that many minorities involved in the mm-hmm. field uh, that I'm in. I, jo- I enjoyed being behind the scenes and went to college and I found my passion to help people. So kind of similar path as you went down. What were some of the, besides your father being in media and the gentleman, Jerome, that you met in uh, college, uh, what were some of the other uh, influences that you had that just kind of led you down this journalist path? Well, there, there, there was a, a, a gentleman who's still here in Memphis, still an esteemed journalist by the name of Karanja Ajanaku. And he too was an editor down at the commercial appeal where you know, I hadn't quite decided that this was what I wanted to do. I was doing an internship while still in school, like they tell you to do. I'd still tell that here 20 years later. I'd still say that's the best. some of the best advice I, I got was doing that internship in school, right, and seeing if that's, uh, that's kind of what I wanted to do. Because this one, the one down at the CA, back in the uh, summer of 2000, they throw you right into the fire. It's no, like, let, let's hold your hand for 90 days and we'll, we'll – sh- 60 days, excuse me, and we'll show you around – they throw you right at a desk, you know, give you a computer, give you a pencil and a pad, pen and a pad, whatever it is, and and tell you, hey, go get us some stories. And so during that 60 days, I think I wrote 58 stories. Wow. And again, now some of those, you know, they're not all you know, 20 inch stories. Some of those are are quick little, little one paragraph hitters. Hey, police arrested uh, this person, this person, this person last night. You know, you're checking the police uh, blog from the night before. So you're covering cops in some instances. You're covering city meetings, that kind of thing, school meetings, that kind of thing. But anyway, I say all that to say that's where I got a taste for what it would be like if I did this for a living. Right. Uh, to where you're, you're writing every day and you're expected to basically produce at least a story a day. At least that's how it used to be. It's even been cranked up more than that uh, now. But during that internship, I met a man named Karanja Janaku, who, uh, again, has um, you know was at the Tri-State Defender for a long time here. Uh, African-American newspaper here in Memphis, but at the time was at the Commercial Appeal as one of the editors. And he told me that I had a, uh, he basically asked me, how did I see myself 
Um, this was a conversation a long time ago, so I don't, I don't remember it word for word, and the Lord knows I haven't thought about it in a while, but he basically asked me how I viewed sort of myself and my role in terms of what I wanted to be, what what I should be sort of in this universe as sort of a uh, an instrument, a, a messenger, if I could be a, really a servant, is what he was really telling me, was that I had an opportunity to serve people. I had a skill when it came to writing and a skill when it came to getting people to tell me a story, right? And, and I could take that story and treat it with the respect that it deserved and pass that story along and resonate, you know, and relate it to folks who, you know, reading that story. And, and, and that may sound like an easy equation, but I think there really is something that comes with it. Because if, you, if you're not a person who cares about other people, who, who cares about the issues of a city or who, I guess, is a robot, right? You, you, you listen to this stuff and maybe it hits you and you just write it and it doesn't affect you at all. Well, then I don't think you can really tell the whole story if you're not, because I think in the end, we sort of all feel the same things. We all sort of, whether you're white, black, uh, you know, Hispanic, whatever it is, uh, male, female, we all go through the same things, have the same feelings. And when it all boils down, have all this, you know, similar stories. So we can all relate to those things. So anyway, my, my, his point being that your role is kind of that. It's kind of at the center of all those stories to tell them to be a storyteller, to, you know, and, and, and while he's telling me this, I'm sort of in one breath, I'm overwhelmed by it. What do you mean? What do you mean? Me, me, me. Like, a, like I'm some kind of chosen one. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm just a kid that, you know, barely, you know, barely got out of college here. It took me forever to get out of school. But there's another part that was completely getting what he's saying, thinking, wow, what an opportunity that, you know, these folks here at the CIA, and yes, it's just an internship, but they're, they're sure treating me like I'm one of them. What an opportunity, again, to serve. At the time, I wasn't thinking, you know, it had anything to do with a higher power or anything like that. Right. Or, but I was thinking, wow, this is an opportunity to tell people's stories and be very respectful in it. And in the process, again, this was a news internship. This wasn't sports right. that I was doing. And uh, in the process, hopefully uh, do something that, that makes a difference. And, and that's what I found in that internship. So Karanja Janaku, along with uh, those folks I mentioned earlier, Candy Justice, another name. She was our boss at the, uh, at the Daily Helmsman, the school newspaper. She, I mean, she shepherded us, us young reporters, us young editors, uh, all the advice in the world. If we were going to work in newspapers, we had to learn how to work for Candy Justice, who was demanding and uh, sort of just like an editor uh, that you'd have in a paper every day, demanding something out of you. So plenty of folks, uh, certainly, but those are, those are certainly right there at the, uh, the top of the folks who inspired me and certainly got me into the, into the business. So when you left the University of Memphis as a, a young, aspiring journalist, after you left the Daily Heldman, you went straight to working in, with preps, right? Mm-hmm. With the preps. had freelanced while I was still in school over at the University of Memphis. had freelanced for the CA. And so when I graduated in 02, I didn't apply to any other newspapers. And I basically put all my eggs in one basket, hoping and praying that something would open up. And eventually, after a year... Um, I got out in 2002. Eventually, that job opens up in August of 2003. A uh, funny thing, a preps writer whose wife told him, honey, you're not making enough money. Yeah, I got to get that bag. Uh, I can't live my, the lifestyle I want to live with you <laughs> on this preps writer's salary. And so that, that gentleman by the name of Brian Douglas uh, decided to get back in school, go get his MBA at Vanderbilt, and so he could go get him some money for his, for his wife. And, and as a result of that, which I found out is, is much of my career, man. Just kind of right place, right time. A lot of hope. Uh, maybe putting a little bit too much eggs in one basket. That's kind of been my whole life story, but it all sort of seeming to work out. That spot opens. At the time, man, like I told you, newspaper is robust down there. You had a 
you had a sports department that had like 20 guys in it. And we had wow. two guys in the preps department. Yeah, so I was working alongside another guy covering preps. There were two of us. And so, yeah, I was in the sports department uh, August of 2003. I remember when I got the job, I'm driving. My mom worked at the University of Memphis. I had gone to see her. And I remember riding down Zach Curlin and screaming, uh, screaming out the window, man, how just screaming, E, literally screaming to the top of my lungs, thank you. <laughs> not even, not, not, you know, what I was saying to God, I don't know who I was saying it to, but uh, the start of, I had framed houses, you know, when, when I, when, when I fooled around in 94, after I, I lost my scholarship up at TSU, first, when I told you I was making, you know, go up there, clown around, lose my scholarship in 94, coming out of high school. I'm working odd jobs from then to 99. By the time I get back in the U of, uh, U of M, you know, I was out here working just like my brothers and, you know, just like my, all my, all my dudes in North Memphis and everything that had, you know, nine to five jobs in warehouses that were watching clocks. Not that those weren't good jobs and jobs that could support me, but I wasn't going nowhere. E, I was I was watching the clock. I was framing houses. That wasn't me. Uh, I, I tried being a security guard, walking a warehouse. That wasn't me. And I'm getting a check, but it ain't a career. E, it's just a job. It's just hours. It's just a check, but it's not a career. And so I knew, man, this ain't no way for me. You know what I'm saying? Even even with my friends all doing the same, working their, their hourly jobs, I, I said, man, something's got to give. I got to get my ass back in school. And uh, that was it. So, so to that point about me screaming to go to put the bow on this little story, I finally have a career. I'm not one of these, you know. I'm no longer an hourly guy. I can go out and I finally accomplish something bigger than that. Man, it felt good. I ain't gonna lie to you. So, Jason Smith, aka Bavia, aka <laughs> Top Flight Security of the World, Craig. Top well, you was a security guy, just just like Craig and Day Day, bro. I had the whole. I didn't have a gun. <laughs> I was uh, guarding a warehouse. I've told this story many a times. Had a best friend that was, uh, I, I call him my best friend still this day. We don't talk anymore, but had a friend who was, uh, man, he worked at the warehouse, man. He, he wanted to come up with a big uh, mob scheme to, to get the warehouse, man. Let, let me be the security guard, help him get stuff up out of it, bro. It was crazy. We never did it, thank God. But that's how crazy it was, bro. Type flight security of the world. That's what I was. No gun. <laughs> I, had a, uh, I had a flashlight, bro, and some. And some yeah, did you, did you have that ultraviolet flashlight or that little flashlight with the battery? Yeah, I, had that, little, I had that little pin flashlight, bro, with my, with my, little, <laughs> with my little lugs boots on, bro. My little remember lugs? <laughs> you had the lugs boots on? Were they the suede boots or the leather ones? Bro, they were some black worker lugs boots, bro. I got them for the boots. I didn't have no I feel like everybody who had a pair of lug boots couldn't afford Timberlands or something. That's what it's some knockoff Timbos, the ones that's exactly what it was. And these were for work. I had a, I had a pair of those. I, I had a pair of those. I used to, I used to rock up in school. I had, I had a pair oh, of those. Oh, no, I wasn't going to do that. This, rock this was, school. This was work only, E. Work only. I could not wear them, <laughs> couldn't wear them lugs in North Memphis. I get tore up. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, now I know I'm going to save you in my phone as Top Flight Security <laughs> Smith. That's your new nickname. <laughs> it would be accurate, man. Imperial Security on Poplar Avenue. There you go. So covering preps in the city of Memphis, obviously growing up, Memphis State basketball at the time was basically the sports scene in the city of Memphis. So over the years of covering preps, a lot of kids from Memphis didn't really flock to the program. So why do you think that so many kids from Memphis back then didn't really go to the University of Memphis or Memphis State? Oh, there's a concrete answer to this one. The answer is John Calipari. John, unlike 
uh, a few of the coaches before, or really all of the coaches before him, and specifically Larry Finch and the Johnny Jones and Tick Price. Uh, those guys, you know, and, and for most of the years of this program, the local talent was the lifeblood, and that's if you had a successful team, most of that talent from that successful team was from Memphis, was mined from here. And Cal was the first coach, really, to take it to another level where he didn't necessarily need the Memphis guys. Now, he started that way. Uh, he started out, you know, just like the, all the other coaches to where that's where he concentrated was getting the Memphis talent. But after a while, you know, you get to 2005, 2006, and it's, you know, past the Dewan Wagners, and eventually he's getting the Darius Washingtons, and, and, and then all of a sudden he's getting the guys from Lorenberg Prep and the CDRs and the, the Antonio Andersons, and it's no longer Memphis guys. And so because of the level he was able to recruit at on a national basis, and listen, Cal was coming from having had the job with the Nets. Now, it was a rebuild for him because remember, you know, and you could say maybe he got a raw deal with the Nets. He took that team to the playoffs first year he was there. He eventually, though, wants to reestablish himself, and he already had some credibility. So it wasn't like, you know, Josh or even Penny in the sense that he's got to go out and prove it because he'd already won at UMass, and, you know, you can go back and forth on how he did it and how, you know, how legally he did it or what, you know, how with Camby and those guys, but he'd won there. Cal had a name, and so by the time he got here, after a few years of playing well in CUSA, he was able to recruit nationally at a level that he didn't need Memphis kids. And so, yes, the Thaddeus Youngs of the world, the, the big ones that came out of here, he'd say, hey, we'll, we'll take it. We want the best out of Memphis, uh, but ended up not getting Thaddeus Young. Uh, I don't even think went hard after a Leslie McDonald uh, who ended up at, uh, I want to say, North Carolina because he ended up you know, getting high-level players nationally. And so, so unlike those before him, uh, Cal didn't have to depend on the local talent uh, as others before him did. You know, Josh, you know, we'll get into him probably soon, but Josh didn't need necessarily, you know, Josh at one point when he started because of the success Memphis had had and the brand it was when Cal, you know, moves on to Kentucky, he was able to recruit nationally and pull in a Will Barton and Antonio Barton and pull in a, a Shaq Goodwin and those kind of players. So it even helped for Pastner, too, in his first year because of the success. But, yeah, and, but eventually even that tightened up and Josh could only get the local kids. But, anyway, I go back to Cal was able to recruit on a national level in a way unlike any before him had been able to. And so that's why for those few years there, uh, and for a while, maybe the better part of a decade, you know, most of the Memphis talent was was leaving Memphis because Cal, quite frankly, didn't need it. He was recruiting so well nationally. Right. So what was the city of Memphis like in – the team goes to the national championship mm-hmm. game, make a Final Four run. Derrick Rose, what's the city like at that particular time? It was on fire. I mean, it, it had to be. I wasn't around in '73 when Bartow took you know this squad with Finch and uh, Ronnie Robinson and some some locals took them to the national championship game. And I imagine it, it had to be similar. You know, in, in a way, you know that one was even was maybe more important because of the times. You know, obviously after the assassination of Dr. King. You know, E, you've lived here. This was a racially polarized city. It still is to this day. Right. But imagine then in those in those right. years right after uh, Dr. King's assassination, it was super polarized. You know, and, and Larry Finch going to Memphis back then was one of the things. And, and Memphis's run to the national champion was one of the things that brought it back together. I mean, there is no question it had that, that was a, an instance where sports had a huge impact on bringing an entire helping bring in, heal a city, helping at least bring a city back together. A city that you know, where some of the you know its its inhabitants didn't trust one another. But back to your question, if you fast forward it to oh seven oh eight. You know, after you'd had eighty five, where you make another Final Four run, but you come up short. It felt like 
Memphis after two tries, right? You've been to the Final Four a couple of times. You had not won it. And in one case, the only thing that stopped you was Bill Walton. It felt like that was the year. It felt like Memphis had the team, you know, CDR and Antonio and uh, Dorsey. That squad had been together for a year. And CDR well, had been together for a couple of years and had some success with an Elite Eight run. And Derrick Rose was sort of the the topper. He was sort of the thing that was going to put him over. We've talked to a CDR who, who, you know, goes by Supreme Bay now. And his point was that, you know, Derrick was kind of the final piece. And initially, he didn't want to, you know, initially because those guys had been together so long, those juniors and seniors, he didn't want to step on any toes. So, you know, he, he was just trying to defer to those guys. But they had a conversation with him. Cal, uh, CDR, all of them said, look, you're going to have to come out of this shell because you, kid, are the final piece. And if you watch – Watch him in that tournament. You see a kid that knows, that's figured it out, that said, you know what, they keep telling me I'm the best I'm the best player on this team right now and I've got to take over, and you see a kid that's figured it out. And that didn't just start in the tournament, but you by that time, you know, it was Derrick Rose's team, even though you had all these older guys who had been there together. And so I say all that to say that, you know, in 07, 08, that year, in 08, you believed. Memphis had been through the, through the tournament with some deep runs, and they thought that was the year. Not just the deep runs in 73 and then again in 85, the deep runs the couple of years before you'd been to an Elite Eight. So they felt like that team was seasoned. Uh, you and I both know you got to have that sort of experience that, you know, it's not the young teams that, that win Final Fours. These, you've you got to have a nice little balance, and that one did. And so the city uh, believed, he, and, and the city truly believed when it was, what, up nine with a couple of minutes to go there on Kansas. You had, brother, you had right. dads calling – you know, you, you had kids calling grandparents, you had dads calling their dads who watched together for years and hoped a moment like this would happen, you know, with about two minutes left there. And Memphis thought it had won its championship, its elusive, you know, long-awaited championship. And uh, boy, was it wrong. And that, that was a tough night for this city. There's no question about it. But, you know, Memphis did what it typically does. And Tigers come home that, that next day, next couple of days. And there's a huge, uh, I remember I was out there, we were at the news, it was all hands on deck at the newspaper to come sort of, uh, you know, right about their return home. And, man, there was a cast of thousands out there at, uh, mm-hmm. at Wilson uh, Wilson Air to sort of welcome them back. And it was just what we do. It was just sort of Memphis picking up the pieces. You know, this is a, a city that's never won the, you know, the Redbirds have won the big one. But but it's it's college basketball team. It's NBA franchise for sure, obviously, since coming. Never won the big one. And so what we've kind of gotten used to is sort of picking up the pieces, right, after you – after you've had the big expectations and you've gotten to the door, but you haven't been able to push all the way through yet, we are experts at sort of getting back to work on a Monday after a big let. And that's what we all did after that 08, 07, 08 loss, man. It was hard to swallow, but we did what Memphis does, which was kind of rolled our sleeves up and said, you know what, back to work and uh, we're not going to let this kill us. But man, was it a, uh, it was a, an electric time. There was no question about it. And uh, yeah, it was a, a, a tough way to, to lose a ball game there. If, uh, if Mario Chalmers does not hit that shot, does is Cal still the head coach at University of Memphis? No, because Cal was always going to leave Memphis for a blue blood. And look, there are some Memphis fans that would hear me say that and say, "Well, Jason, we consider ourselves a blue blood too." But and I would tell you that Penny Hardaway considers it that, or at least thinks it should be among those, or can be, has the potential to be among those. But Cal was here at Memphis to sort of restore himself, like we've talked about after that Nets job. And he was going to, whether it was UCLA, whether it was a Kentucky, one of the big blue bloods was going to come calling. And when they did, uh, Cal was going to go. And so he, he would have, no, 
uh, they would have won a title and Cal would have gone again to whether I, he'd probably still be at Kentucky. Quite frankly, he'd be in the same place. Uh, that was going to end sooner or later. And that e is sort of the, the key difference it feels like between a Cal, even a Josh Pastner, who this was his first job. Obviously, he replaces, uh, not to move it too forward, but to make a point here, even for Josh, for Penny, there's nowhere to go. See, for Penny, this is the dream job. For a Cal, and listen, for any probably any coach in, in college basketball, you know, Memphis isn't the final destination. It's it's sort of the stepping stone to the big job. Whether you see, you know, whether your big job's North Carolina, whether your big job is, is Florida, whether your big job's Kentucky or Louisville, this has sort of been seen or had been as sort of the stepping stone to that job. And with Penny, it feels different because again, Penny doesn't want another college job. This is the job that he wants. If if anything, you know, it'd be Penny moving on, you know, if, if he ever gets this, you know, maybe say he wins a championship or two, or maybe he doesn't, maybe he takes a, you could see Penny maybe putting his toe in the NBA waters. But when it comes to a job, this is a, Penny sees this as the top right. because he sees Memphis as sort of a, the, a, should be along the lines of a Duke or North Carolina. At least that's how he's operating for sure. So Cal leaves, goes to Kentucky. Josh Pastner's ushered into the job. It's been long uh, written and, He's made plenty of interviews, uh, Coach Pastner, about how he was in the car driving, packed up, going to Kentucky with uh, Coach Calipari. He just recruited John Wall. I believe just recruited DeMarcus Cousins. So he was on his way to Lexington, and he gets the call to basically hit, a, hit, hit the brakes and make a U-turn and come back, and he gets the University of Memphis job as a head coach. What was it like in Memphis during those Josh Pastner years? I mean, he was uh, known around the country as a high-level recruiter, a basketball savant, um, recruited a lot of great, great players over the years. So what was it like for the, the people of the city of Memphis to embrace Josh Pastner after just losing John Calipari? Well, you know, whether it was Josh or, you know, some other coach, Memphis wanted so badly the fans, the the people associated with the program in terms of that, that athletic department. They wanted so badly to show the rest of the nation that Memphis was stronger and more than just Cal, that the brand was bigger than what Cal had, even what he had turned it into. Now, Cal had took it to his greatest heights. You you know, won the 60-something or whatever the record is in CUSA play. I mean, they, they were dominant at a level we've not seen in conference play especially. So don't get me wrong. I think there was a there's a respect level for Cal that Memphis fans were hurt when he leaves for Kentucky, but there was right. a respect that he had taken it to his greatest heights. That said, when he leaves, you want to show the rest of the nation that it wasn't just about him, that you can survive. And so to answer your question, when Josh comes in, he comes into open arms. He comes into a, to a, a fan base that my gosh, they were chomping at the bit for him to succeed. They wanted to prove to the rest of the country that we can have a first year coach, guy who's just been an assistant, he's known as a fantastic recruiter. We can take him, and because we're a special outfit, because we're a special program, we can still be nationally relevant. And by gosh, you know, after a year, you know, that, that one year where Josh goes to NIT, I mean, he's basically scrambling to put a team together. As fate would have it, Elliot Williams transfers in from Duke. They end up having a pretty good season with a team that's got Wesley Witherspoon on it too, a holdover from the Cal years, go to the NIT and um, have a pretty good year. But And, and it helps him set up what would turn out to be in just his second year, he's pulling in the number two recruiting class in the country with Joe Jackson, Chris Crawford, uh, Tariq Black, and Will Barton, and, and Antonio Barton. He's pulling in the number two class in the country to where 
okay, Memphis, uh, just a year removed from Cal, is recruiting at a level that's equal to or, or better in, in some years than Cal has. And so to answer your question, he, it started off great where to the point that first Memphis madness after Cal, where Josh is introduced, the, the people are going crazy because they're, they're they, again, they want to show the rest of the country and prove to themselves really that it wasn't just about Cal. And so as electric as, as it had been in 07, 08, you know, people felt like this can still go on even with a, an unproven coach in Josh Patterson. So the electricity was still there, the expectations to win and to win big, even though you knew it wouldn't be quite like it was under Cal. Uh, the expectations to win big were still there. And once he pulled in the number two class going into t- the 2010-11 season, the expectation level was right back sort of where it had been because by then, look, Memphis was used to having big recruiting classes and used to having deep runs in the NCAA tournament. So Josh comes right in, and you've got to give him all the credit in the world because I'm not sure how many how many first-time college head coaches would have been able to come into this job that's so highly scrutinized here in Memphis – and do the job he did, especially early on, to not only keep the thing, you know, afloat when a monster like Cal leaves, and I mean, you know, a Hall of Famer uh, like John Calipari leaves, but he uh, he didn't just keep it afloat. He ran with it there for those first few years where he had Memphis fans feeling like, you know what, we don't need Cal at all, and we're going to be just fine without him. That was the feeling around town those first few years with Josh Pastor. Your eardrums buzzing yet? Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. Enough of us. Now let's get back to the show. At that particular time, when Josh Pastor takes over, you leave preps and you're get offered the job to become the beat writer for the Memphis Tiger program. How'd that happen? Kind of again, right place, right time. Dan Walken after uh, one year of of finishing up those Cal years, 07, 08, and then Cal stays the one more year for Tyreek. Dan had, Walken had um, Josh one more year, Josh's first year, 09, 10, before with that class that we just talked about that had Joe, all those local standouts, Tarrick Black, Chris Crawford, guys I had covered for the last three to four years in high school with Dan moving on to a national spot at the time. It was with the Daily. He's moved on now to USA Today. But there was a spot open. And with my with my relationships with those players that Josh was recruiting, uh, the paper said, you know what, uh, this kid's been, you know, at that point, I'm not a kid, I guess I'd have to tell myself that I'm in my early 30s. And they said, you know, he's he's covered uh, Joe and Tark and those guys for the last four years. He knows them well, knows their games well. Let's give him a shot. And I'd covered preps at that point for seven years. And so I, and I was ready for a change. And so they come to me and say, you want it? And I said, heck, yeah, I want it. And yeah, move on to that beat. And so I come in. Josh's second year, 2010-11, things have calmed. Even though he's recruiting at a higher level, clearly, things have calmed down a bit. He's got his staff in place. I remember Sip and Willis Wilson and Jack Murphy. He's got those guys in place. And so he wasn't running around like a chicken with his head cut off like he was the summer before right. doing it all himself. It had calmed down for him. We're happy to see him. And so I come in. Things are calmed down. And uh, we go into a 2010-11 season with fans expecting this number two class in the country to come right in and, and win big. And uh, immediately, Josh had had Memphis back in the in the NCAA tournament there in his second year, and uh, yeah, and all of a sudden I'm covering big time college basketball. So uh, going out on the road, you know, after covering state tournaments and all that, and up in Nashville for in preps, I'm I'm on the road going to you're on the road. Spokane, you in, you in the Bahamas? You know, you're in the Bahamas, Maui. 
I went, went to the Bahamas. We did Maui. Um, taking my wife and all that. I'm going on real trips and feeling like, uh, man, I'm covering big time college athletics. It was fun, but it was hard because again, you are you're writing about 13 guys, essentially a couple walk ons, a coach, a few assistants. You're writing up about them for a period of about a half a year. You're doing it for seven days a week while that season's going, and uh, no, you know, no days off during the season. That's that's the appetite right. for Memphis basketball here in here in town. You know that better than anybody. And so that part gets hard to constantly come up with a different angle when you're dealing with the same set of individuals over and over. But man, with the love that this city has for that team, like we've talked about, it's almost like covering you know the city's pro team, which Memphis had been for so long before before the Grizzlies uh, ended up getting here back in the day. So it feels like you're in an important spot and you need to do a good job. Yeah. So anyway, much like Josh felt like, you know, he said, I'm the gatekeeper of Memphis basketball. They used to be, I'm the gatekeepers. I'm here to serve the fans. I'm the ga-. That's kind of how I felt with in terms of telling, you know, those players' stories for those years it was like, you're, you're the bridge between the players and the fans. So it's up to you to tell these players' stories and get, you know, allow these fans to get close to them, get to know them. And uh, you, there's a great deal of responsibility you feel that comes with that so i was a, uh, I was grateful to have the gig so yeah, no tell, tell us a, a cool story covering the beat something that you saw on the road something that the fans wanted to see or maybe didn't hear about like what was a a cool experience you remember just covering the team some of the behind the scenes stuff you know josh was the one for me that uh, he fascinated me in the sense that uh he hated losing right and he would stay up till three four in the morning not just calling assistants, but he called media <laughs> members, man. He called media members and asked them, what do you think about the game? And I'm going to tell you this, E, man. I don't think I've told you this story. It was after an SMU loss, I want to say. Memphis, had, Memphis wasn't used to losing to SMU. Like they, and, and SMU didn't have a program back then before you know, Larry gets down there and the thing picks up. But it was after the, you know, one of those first losses to SMU, where I think maybe even Will Barton had talked a little trash going in or whatever. And... Um, Memphis comes out of there. We're back at the hotel. I've written the game story. We're getting ready to go back home in the morning, me and, my, me and the photographer, Mark Weber. And Josh Pastor calls me like 2.30 in the morning. Maybe it was 1.30. I don't remember what time it was. Like, I can't believe Josh. Now, keep in mind, this is like, this is my first year on the beat. I'm trying to get to know Josh. You want to keep the information flowing. So you're trying to, you're trying to have a good relationship with him because, number one, you want him to know you're going to be, you're going to be critical of him, right, when you need to be. Right. But you also want to have a good relationship with him because you want to see practice. You want insight. You have to have a good working relationship. So he calls it two, and and I'm thinking, oh, man, okay, well, it must be something important. I mean, coach of Memphis is calling me at 2 o'clock. And so I answer, uh, pick up the phone, start talking. Uh, Josh is talking, man, can't believe we lost, you know, can't believe we lost games, all this, and uh, can't believe this happened, this happened. So Josh is, you know, be all right, man, everything, you know, you'll get through this one, whatever. Uh, yeah, a bad game for this kid, bad game for that kid. And so I'm thinking, oh, man. And, and, and I don't know, maybe five, ten minutes we get off the phone. I'm thinking, okay, I've talked to Josh. I got a little bit more insight on the players. But I go back and tell my photographer the next day, I'm like, I tell Mark, I said, man, I must be really getting this thing because me and the coach are getting real tight, man. He's calling me at like 2 a.m. in the morning. And so Mark is like, eh, I don't know. Like, what did he say? Anyway, I go through it, and I'm like, man, I'm, I'm me and the coach are getting tight. This is good for my relationship. Man, we get back in the car to go back and uh, and end up back on the plane and so we're sitting there talking to uh, Kevin Barbie, who's the photographer for Local 24, I think, at the time. And we're all back in the, getting ready to go back uh, back to Memphis. And Barbie, uh, at some point, said, looks up and says, man, man, y'all know Josh Passner called me last <laughs> night talking about the game? As soon as he said that, I looked at Mark, 
and where E, I had felt so special <laughs> thinking as the beat, you know, man, I got a special relationship growing with Josh Passon. That man called me at 130. Bro, he had called Kevin Barbie, the, ph- the photographer, the, the TV <laughs> photographer, 30 minutes before me. And did the same damn thing. So for all that, so Mar- I'm looking at Mark and just shaking my head, like thinking for a hot minute that I was special, like I was some hot, hot stuff beat writer that had a good relationship with the coach and was going to get all the scoops. And and come to find out, Josh was just weird like that. He he would just call everybody. He was so miserable. I mean, you know this better than probably better than better than me. He was so miserable after losses. He would pick brains. He would not eat. And um, if you talk to his, if you ever talk to his wife, who, but I mean, God bless that woman. She 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 was awesome. Everything that sort of going through because th- th- those were miserable times there at the end of the Josh's years here, man. Memphis Memphis was giving him and his family, giving him and Carrie hell at the end of it. But I, I always used to wonder, man, are they going to last? You can tell she loves him, he loves her. But when when they lose games, uh, and man, that losing started to get thick there at the end. Uh, he is so miserable. You just wonder, does it wear on his family? Does it wear on his wife? Does he take that home with him? Because you can tell how much it's consuming him. And so anyway, yeah, those were some of the stories. It's like you'd see the guys hit the buckets, what they were averaging. You know, Dominic Woodson was a guy who never played. There was always off the court drama with him. But it was sort of watching the, sort of the team players, you know, Chris Crawford, Will Barton getting into a fight, you know, when St. Louis is beating them and the the game plan ain't going and Josh can't calm that team down and sort of, you know, seeing that thing come un- unhinged and, you know, seeing how the players dealt with losing. Those were the times when it was really fascinating that, you know, sometimes didn't always make the paper, but you would find out that, you know, there's so much more to these guys than just uh, just averages and what a guy did at Arizona to get this job. I mean, you found out so much more about the men about the young man and the players and about the young men in the players cases that, you know, that, that kind of stuff was more the eye openers than, than anything that ever happened on the court. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I know Josh very well. And just to be a part of his program for a few years to see those years you're talking about towards the end, seeing how those losses really affected him. Um, I was really glad kind of when he was able to move on to um, the next mm-hmm. stop, so that he can find uh, a bit of happiness, because I felt the, some peace. the I felt the peace yeah. for him, and I felt uh, sometimes at, at times the people in Memphis kind of turned their back on him. We stopped getting fans come to, come into the games. Um, we didn't get the support that he got uh, at the beginning of his tenure. I mean, his teams were never losing, but I just felt the expectation for the team was. Final Four or bust, and I just didn't feel like mm-hmm. that was realistic. So uh, I'm just kind of happy for him to to move on, and he has peace now at his new place. So after Josh leaves, uh, you get Hall of Fame coach Chubby Smith comes in for a quick cup of coffee, and then you know it seems like just out of nowhere we usher in the Penny Hardaway era at Memphis. Um, so I follow the program still very much, and I see that Penny has really revamped that entire program. Um, I met Penny a few times um, when I was at at Memphis. Um, He has a building named for him, athletics building named for him, the Penny Hardway Mm -hmm. Hall of Fame, I believe, right? On campus over there. And just to see what the city was, the city, how they support him and the fans coming back out to the games and things like that. Uh, Number one recruiting class in the nation, projected number one overall pick for next year's draft and uh, James Wiseman 
talk about what the buzz is like right now in the city now that Penny has really got that thing moving in the right direction. Well, you got to go back and, and listen with all due respect to Josh, who, who's, a, who's a great man. And I think, too, I'm, I'm with you. I think I think he'll be appreciated more the further it gets away from his tenure. I mean, four straight NCAA tournaments. Remember, keep in mind, Memphis, Memphis hadn't been in four years. You know, they, they'd kill right now to have four straight years of even through, you know, those last those two years of Tubby where they didn't go. But you would have to go back through those years, those first couple of years of Josh, where there was big time excitement. Folks thinking this thing would sort of be like it was in the Cal years to that 07, 08 season, maybe even 08, 09 with, with Tyreek. But 07, 08, I think because you had what sort of felt like the perfect team and with Derrick Rose sort of being the top of this place was electric and people had, you know, the real national championship hopes that season. That's where they're at right now. You know, and, and Penny, in just his second year, where other coaches would try to temper those expectations, right? Maybe mow them down a little bit. And, well, hold on, we're going to be young. You know, give us some time to build a program. Penny runs to them. You know, Penny embraces them. Penny tells you we're go- that the program's going to recruit like Duke and North Carolina and Kentucky. And then he goes out and lands the number one class. And he tells you that when he w- looks at his number one class and what's returning, that he sees a national championship and not in, not in the next couple of years, but this year, that's what he told Dane O'Neill from the athletic. And so he goes against conventional wisdom when it comes to coaching and lowering expectations, he's jacking them up. So when you do that with this fan base, you know what that's a, a, a recipe for. You're going to get the place bubbling. You're going to get it hot. And that's where Penny has it right now. You know, he has a style, he has a, a swag, a drip, whatever you want to call it. Right. Unlike any other college coach in America. I mean, he's the only, you know, head coach, he's the first one to have a signature shoe line. He's a head coach. It feels like Nike will make him anything he wants. The guy's wearing Louis Vuitton half the time. He's, you know, right. roving a Bentley truck. He's got a Bentley. He is at a level of cool E that when it comes to the players he recruits, like that still resonates with them in a way that even when Coach K walks in the room, E, they're in the same swag. There's, there's a level of respect and reverence for K and for Cal that those guys have gotten. Those recruits going to straighten up, but there's a level of cool that I think Penny's got the reverence with him because he played and he's got the career, right? And and he's got Mike Miller and a staff of NBA guys that they that those recruits like Jalen Green, like James Wiseman, all respect. But when you put the cool factor to it, that he's wearing the kind of clothes e that that they want to wear. He got future coming to mid, uh, the Memphis Madness. You already got. He got future. He's got. He's got future. He's got a uh, money bag, yo. And he's got the same swag as sort of they want to have. It's not the typical 47-year-old second-year coach swag who, you know, guy out to try to prove himself or, or try to show the country, hey, I can – Penny is the epitome of cool. And so that's what – with him has come that coolness, right? And, and, and with that coolness has come these players, and all of a sudden it's like a beehive where the thing is buzzing. And it feels like it's 0708 again. And the only difference is – it, well, there's a couple of differences. Number one, like I told you earlier, where you feel like, well, it might come to an end because that coach, if he wins big, well, he's going to go on to, to, to North Carolina or he's going to go on to UCLA or some big blue blood job. Doesn't feel like Penny would go anywhere. But the other part of it is that you don't have, unlike 0708, this is not an already seasoned team that's adding the final piece of the recipe in Derrick Rose. This is a team that's going to rely really heavily on seven freshmen. And so you don't have that same – while you've got the fourth best odds to win the whole thing, you don't have that same sort of experience you know, mix that you had in 07-08. So while people really believe that this Memphis team has the talent to win it all, 
I'm not sure they have the experience to do so. And yet Penny has said, you know, we are trying to win a national championship right now. We think we have the talent. And so with that sort of bravado, you know, him having the expectations high himself, there's a level of excitement that we have not seen around here since at least 07 and 08. So it, it's buzzing around here right now. Ian. And it also helps yep. too right now that the football program is on a trajectory that we haven't seen in a long time. It's the first time mm-hmm. ever that both men's basketball and football ranked in AP top 25 at the exact same time. So it has to be even more so buzz surrounding all the athletics in Memphis. They got a new athletic director who's replaced Tom Bowen and Laird Beach, who's coming over from uh, from Florida. Uh, he's a Kansas State guy, football guy from Kansas State originally. And we, we've been joking about this, had him on the radio this week. And you could not have written a better script in terms of coming into your job where, you know, in most instances as an AD, you're charged with rebuilding something, right? You've gotten the job because something's failing. Uh, the old ADs have been moved on and maybe you've got a failing football program like Memphis had when Tom Bowen arrived. And that was sort of, that was his charge. That was his job. Fix the football program. Well, Laird Beach comes in here. And to the point you just made, for the first time ever, this program, what, they're number 24 in the AP poll in football. They're number 14 in the AP poll in basketball. They've never been ranked in both polls same time. So they've never experienced, we've never, as, as a city, as a fan base, never experienced that program at those heights at the same time. In a town, E, that you know as well as anybody, haven't worked here, is as basketball a town as there ever is and as there ever has been in the city. That's first love is basketball. You have got a what's expected to be a full house of 58,000 people on Saturday night to see a Memphis football team that for the last five to six years has wanted a clip that I think many of us never thought we would see. Keep in mind, this is a program that 10, 11 years ago uh, was talking about dropping football completely. Was talking about, hey, if we, if we don't, should we drop down to FCS? And if we don't drop down to FCS, should we drop the whole thing? And that's, you know. It's a credit to the people that decided, no, no, you know what, we're going to, you know, the Justin Fuentes, the Tom Bowens who said, you know what, no, we're going to we're going to make this thing good here. And they have under Mike Norvell and that uh, with Fuentes, a lot of people like to say he laid the foundation. I think you can even go back to Larry Porter in terms of the talent that was brought here. And, and all of a sudden they're in a spot to where they could possibly be the group of five representative in the Cotton Bowl or at least the New Year's Six Bowl, uh, possibly playing in the Cotton Bowl. So, yeah. Uh, exciting times, not just for that basketball side, but also for the football side as well. Memphis is a uh, and, and Grizzlies a little bit downy, but they've got a couple future stars. <laughs> they hope and Ja Morant and Jaron Jackson. Yeah, 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 I'm a big fan of Ja Morant. That that boy right there, he's he's like uh, Russell Westbrook 2.0. Mm hmm. A little bit, little bit, little bit slighter build at the six, but but if he can, uh, but athletically in the way he attacks the basket, I, you, uh, yes. Russell Westbrook's the one you think about. He's got a slow windup on his shot. He, you know, he's going to need to. That's the one thing you can see is is that that's different for him. But my gosh, he is going to be a double digit assist man for his entire career. Watch him average about eight nine this year, and then by the time he gets the second third year, you talking about a guy's going to average twelve or thirteen dimes a game, and probably for his wow. career because he's going to hit that early. He is such a natural setting folks up. He it's unbelievable. So for you going from beat writing for for Memphis Tigers basketball to now being on one of the highest rated sports talk shows in the city of Memphis, hosting your own show, the Jason and John show on 92.9 ESPN, your Twitter page says you're still on a horse riding for Memphis. So give us some insight on why you go so hard for the city of Memphis. Why do you feel 
like maybe you're the voice of the community. Just take us a little bit into your mind on why you feel like you have to ride so hard for the city of Memphis. Much like I was telling you about that responsibility of being a storyteller, right? And, and you take someone's story and you want to make sure you take good care of it because when you tell it to the rest of the world, right, you want it to be something that that person who gave you and trusted you with that story can be proud of, right? That, that, that is truly their story. And so I consider this job I have in radio now much the same way because a great responsibility because, number one, first African-American host, uh, in a again, it, it, it's crazy, hard enough to believe 2016 in a town that's 65% African American that there had not been a regular African American host on this radio station, or at least on this station, 92.9 FM ESPN. And so, listen, you know it better than anybody. In a time where you know sports often crosses over right into into to, to, to racial uh, issues and uh, socioeconomic issues, all that stuff. A time where you're talking about a lot of times Black Lives Matter is sometimes in sports stories. Look at the Kaepernick story. What you had typically right, right. before what you would have was was a bunch of white guys talking about it. With all, all due respect, you just have white guys weighing in on sports talk radio all over this country. Frankly, weighing right. in on on topics where it's not just the case with sports talk radios; it's the case with everything. Where diversity, right? Where other voices, uh, voices of color where you don't get that value, you don't hear that voice, where that voice is all shut out of those conversations. And how could it be when half the time that's literally the subject? Kaepernick's, you know, taking the uh, kneeling is the subject. So to not have a black voice on that uh, seemed preposterous, quite frankly. And so I, I, to, to answer your question, when they come to me in 16, 2016 and say, hey, we're interested, are you? Initially, I'm, of course, I'd be interested because that that's something I'd, I'd with writing and, 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 and being at the newspaper and writing that Tigers basketball beat, you're known for, you're in that box as the beat writer. When people ask you questions, it's, hey, how's the coach doing? How's Josh Pastner's team looking? How's Tubby's team going to look? How's this player looking? At? You're in that Tiger. So, so when you're asked your opinion, it's typically of a, a basketball team. So, so after six years and, you, and after growing up in Memphis and you're in your, you've lived Memphis, you become more than just a, an expert on on the the beat that you cover. You become an expert on the city that you grew up in. And I say all that to say I was more than just that kid, that that beat writer in that Tigers basketball box. And so to get the opportunity to have a bigger platform where you can talk Grizzlies, you can talk Tigers, you can talk Kaepernick, you can talk issues, talk my city and things that affect it and in turn affect the people of it, that was a, a great opportunity for me and one that I didn't want to pass up. And so yeah, man, I, I look at it as now you've got an African-American voice, you know, full-time host on the station for the first time ever. Okay, that's great. Uh, now, what are you going to do? You know, you're going to sit here and, you know, you're going to shuck and jive and, and, and make jokes and, and all that stuff and, and, and entertain? Are you going you gonna to try to, you're going to try to make it better for the, for the next guy, right? And get more voices in here. And, and I think it's the latter. If I'm not doing the latter, I'm not paying it forward like I should, right? I get this opportunity. I need to make sure there's opportunities for other brothers. And so that's what I've looked at. More than than trying to put a good show together five days out of the week, I'm more concerned with let's get some more brothers in here. Let's get some more sisters in here. Let's get some more voices on here that are like mine, that are like these others that we haven't heard. And again, with all due respect, we've heard all these white male voices for years growing up. Let's hear some other ones. On sports and, and here and, and that e is where you truly find the value of diversity, man. 
because what you'll find is like like we were saying earlier, man, we all feel the same shit. Like, and excuse my friend, but it's just real. We all come, you know, all of our stories are relatable. Like, anyway, it all sort of comes together. And so to be able to do that, right, to get more voices on, and we've done that. We've brother named Anthony saying we brought him on. He's got a weekly segment on Wednesdays. He now writes for Sports Illustrated, was writing for the Flyer covering the Grizzlies. He's got a weekly segment with us. I'm proud of that. I'm proud of, you know, that people look forward to hearing him on Wednesdays now. And so what I feel like is my charge is, and that's what I feel like is riding for Memphis is not just ease, getting that opportunity and, and opening up that door and walking through it and looking and saying, thank you, I'm glad to be here. But looking behind me and saying, man, now it's on me to pull some others through this door too and show these folks that, you know what, it's the party is better when we're up in here. You know what I mean? Like this is when right. it's better, when we're all in this party together and, and we're all, you know, sort of pulling on it together. So that's kind of where I'm at, man. I look at, I look at it as a great opportunity that I was given really by God. God certainly had those steps in front of me. I never thought I'd, I never set out to be a radio show, talk show radio host, but my gosh, I'm, I'm grateful for it because I feel like it gives me an opportunity to, as you put it, to sort of ride for my city, the things that I think, you know, matter to our residents, the thing I think matters to our citizens, the things that matter to me and to my kid and my wife. I'm able to talk about those things. And I think that's a pretty cool deal, man. Yeah, I'm very, very proud of you, uh, my brother. Because you have always been the you've always been the same. As long as I've known you, you still got the same swag about you. You haven't let anything go to your head, and you're still looking to pay it forward. You still give people opportunities. You still give people a chance to voice to voice their opinion. I know you're still in the community doing the community work talking to the, the normal common folks. And I just, I just want to say I'm proud of you and I, I appreciate you and, you know, holding it down. And I know the future is only going to be brighter and brighter for you. I know this opportunity is going to open more doors for you. I know it's already opened up plenty of doors for you and yeah. we're going to get you out of that, uh, out of that Ford escape that you, that I know you, you, whip, you was pushing. <laughs> Brother, I'm still in the Ford Escape and 06 Mazda. Some things don't change. And I'm telling you, I'm riding <laughs> until the doors fall off, brother. Until the doors fall off. So, so you're still in the Escape. So are you still with the 2 for 99 Black and Mild? Man, you will be happy to know, E, that on September 3rd, uh, I quit Black and Miles. I quit. I've been September 3rd. Look, I'm, I'm writing this down on my notes as we Write speak. it down right now. I'm going to save it in my phone Which, under your notes. September 3rd. I quit. The black and miles were blacked out. They were blacked out. And so what, November 3rd will mark two months. And my wife tells me e, that I have not smiled since I quit smoking, that I have been a real <laughs> jerk, a real ass around the house. And I had to sit around and think about it. And you know what? I think she's right. Because while physically, <laughs> while physically I don't have the, uh, the urge anymore, man, life just ain't as much fun when you're not smoking blacks. Is what I found. You were right. It's healthier. My lungs are not as black. I don't have black lung anymore. But I'm not having as much fun. I am not having as much fun. But I am healthier. My insurance rate is going to drop from uh, like 490 something to 100 something. So that's going to be a blessing. Once I can prove in like eight months, I'm still not smoking. uh, So anyway, I say all that to say thank you for always trying to always encouraging me, brother, the, the right thing to get off them damn things and Stop being a fool, and because I can't anymore, man. I got a kid that's five, and I'm literally, I'm literally breathing, and I'm wheezing. That's no way to live. And so, yeah, man, it, I was right. talking about it on the radio one day, and man, these listeners reached out, e, 
One woman wrote a two-page letter handwritten about how she had quit in the 70s and what she had done. These listeners actually cared, just like you did. Memphis, like I'm talking about on the radio, how I want to quit. Not saying I hadn't said a date or nothing. And uh, this woman sent this letter, and it was that letter, and these folks calling in and saying, man, you need to quit. I just said, man, you know what? Stop stop saying you're going to put a date on it. Do it today. And it was based off, man, other folks giving a damn so much. Yo Gotti, Memphis is on. Put a date on you it. You already know. Put a date <laughs> on it. So listen, man, I'm, I'm proud of you too. I'm, I'm waiting on this podcast to blow. This is the uh, first of many. Um, I appreciate you being my inaugural guest, kind of my guinea pig. And yeah, I'm, I, I'm trying to find a different lane for me to go in as well. Uh, I'm still doing my strength and conditioning and fitness work. As everybody knows, I'm a people person and after the time I came on the show, um, so many people just said that, you know, you need to get into you got a knack for podcasting yep. or radio. Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah, I can say I got a knack for it. So I just wanted to try it out and uh, see if it works out for me and, you know, we'll see what goes from there. I want to thank you, my brother, for coming on uh, my podcast tonight, and I will be in touch with you soon. Hey, man. Your natural talent. Keep up the good work, man. Let me know anything I can do for you, man. Always supporting you, brother. I'm proud of you as well. Thank you, brother. I appreciate Take care it. Take care. Love you, man. Thanks for listening to another episode of the No Referees Podcast. Please hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Till the next episode, we out.